So we have been taking up questions, and a common theme at wesleymemorial.org slash questions that uh, has come up the past few weeks, and again, you can go there this whole month and drop in questions whenever you would like, is this question here, and I think I've got a slide for it. Um, what is true tolerance? Are we ever supposed to judge anyone? How do I live faithfully in a world of difference? That theme popped up a few times, so we are trying our best to sort of organize these things. But it's a really cool kind of conversation, you know, to have this sort of feedback loop. And I love that you all are participating with it, so thank you. It's a really good question in our world today. Um, what, what's the answer to that? Well, on one hand, the world we live in has an answer to that question. Um, the words of Jesus, and I'd say that the world's answer to that question is no, never, ever have an opinion that's offensive in any possible way. Jesus' answer that we'll see in Matthew 7 in a little bit um, is, is an alternative to the world's answer. Like, uh, if, what does really the Bible say in Matthew chapter 7? Like Jesus' other teachings, really about anything, um, it, he really comes across as speaking from the outside in. Uh, it, uh, really about anything that he teaches on. Like, for example, um, when I was a kid, we went to the, I went to the Wayne County Fair every fall in Goldsboro. Now, if you want to talk about high society uh, stuff, go to the Wayne County Fair. If you're wearing shoes, you're good. Um, I think Wayne County, that's why it says no shirt, no shoes, no service. I think that originated where I grew up. Um, but you go to the Wayne County Fair growing up in the 80s and 90s, you play some of those boardwalk kind of games, and you didn't, you've done this before where you win a goldfish, and they put it in a bag. You, you, ever, you don't have to do that anymore. It's probably like inhumane or something. But you win a goldfish in a bag, and you have to carry it around all night. Now, when you win it, though, they say, oh, well, if you won the goldfish, you have to buy the fish food and the plastic fish bowl and the net scooper. Um, so even though you won the game, you're actually out about 10 bucks. And so you walk around. You don't want it to die, do you? you know, so you go home with all this stuff. And then what happens to the fish, right? You give it a burial at sea uh, within a few days. But imagine with me if you had a Finding Nemo moment. that You could hold that bag, and you and the fish could talk to each other. And you had a moment, and you could, you could speak to each other. And you could speak into that fish's existence and say to the fish, what is it you're swimming in? The fish would go, what are you talking about? This is just what it is. This is my world. I don't know, it just is what it is. And you could say, no, it's water. You're swimming in water. And they go, what, what is water? I don't know what that is. When Jesus teaches on really anything, it's like him speaking into a fishbowl of our lives. And he's saying, what is it you're swimming in? Do you even know what you're swimming in or what your world is or what you're supposed to be doing or thinking or understanding about most of anything? Let me tell you what it is that you're swimming in. Or in a more biblically appropriate metaphor, you could say, uh, sheep. What is it you're walking on, that green stuff? Do you even know what that is? Uh, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you running into a ditch? You know, why are you running away? Why do you do what you do? And so it goes. Jesus' teaching provides form to chaos. It provides light into darkness. It provides purpose into existence. He gives names to that which we think is nameless. And he always gives clarity in the midst of confusion and only someone higher and greater than us can do that. 
can have the perspective to speak like that with such authority. And they always marveled at Jesus' authority for that reason, because he's able to do that. And that's what he's doing when he's talking about judgment and tolerance and all this sort of stuff. So which we'll see in a minute, his words do challenge the postmodern understanding of tolerance and judgment, without a doubt. Um, and we are conditioned by our own worldview. We're conditioned by our upbringing, our education. Uh, we have a filter by which we judge others. We all do. And oh, we do judge others. <laughs> Sometimes snap quickly, uh, and uh, usually unfairly. Um, but, but for example, with some of these filters that we have that we carry around with, secular conservative culture is largely individualistic. It puts a priority on personal liberty. Liberal secular culture is collectivistic. It puts a responsibility on the response of the collective or the whole. Cultural conservatives are combative on things like sex and gender, tend to look the other way on race and poverty sometimes. Cultural liberals are passionate about all those topics, but they're more, they don't want to talk about personal sin. To the poor, some secular conservatives would look to the poor and go, you know, it's, it's their fault. It's their fault, which is essentially John Locke. Now, secular liberals would look at the poor and say it's, it's the failure of the state, it's the failure of the collective, which is essentially Karl Marx at its core, philosophically. But Christianity at its best does not hold to either of those type of worldviews, the secular conservative or liberal, in terms of judging others. Do not let those filters be, come across as your Christian understanding of how to judge other people. It's not true. The Bible speaks into culture from the outside, above the fray, to say to the fish, if you will, what is it you're swimming in? It provides form to the chaos and clarity in the confusion. So Jesus' words in Matthew 7, let's read them together about this. It says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is still in your own eye? Imagine having a log in your eye. <laughs> That's funny. Verse, uh, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the tiny little speck out of your neighbor's eye. So first I'm looking at verses one through four. Jesus clearly says judgment begins internally in the heart and out of that space the mouth speaks. Now a godly person is more rigorous in judging themselves than other people. You must always be rigorous in judging yourself and gracious in judging other people. Treat other people as you want to be treated, the golden rule. Verses 1 through 4 make that abundantly clear. Look at yourself first. For every finger you point, how many are pointing back at you? I guess three, right? This doesn't really count, does it? <laughs> at least three. So that's first point. Secondly, whatever standard of judgment you hold, it will come back on you, he says. You will reap what you sow. This uh, spiritual law of reciprocity. You reap what, it's not karma. Not karma. Karma is, you, you, first of all, karma is not Christian. 
Karma means it carries over into the next life, and if you treat someone bad, you might gr- next life you might be an aardvark or something like that. Not, not Christian. But in here, in this life, in this fishbowl, you will reap what you have sown. If you judge other people unfairly, it will come with you. It's back to you. So Jesus is saying, start with mercy. Start with mercy. Because isn't that what you would want to get? Yes. And isn't that how God treats every single person? Yes. So in short, true tolerance and judgment of others must remind you of your humanity and therefore your faults and your sin. So have empathy on other people. Tolerance means you recognize the humanity of a person. In Christian terms, it means you recognize the image of God in that person, that you never, ever shake hands with a mere mortal. The image of God should be so overwhelming in the other person that you can't help but love them. Verses 1 through 4, absolutely. Verse 5, read it in context, though. Go back to verse 5. He is not against seeing the faults in others, but God is against doing it hypocritically. He says, take the log out of your eye so that you can see clearly. And then you are able to address someone else's issue in love, but deal with your stuff first. So but here's the problem, though, that people may have with all of that is, man, it feels good to judge other people, doesn't it? Oh, it feels great to put people in their place. You're right, they're wrong. You feel superior. You feel smug. You know, we love to do that. But here's the deal with gossip. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> There's not a Bible book called Second Hesitations that says... Judge other people and enjoy it thusly. Jesus says, if you judge others without mercy and as a hypocrite, it's going to come back on you somehow. So when you become aware of someone else's failing or struggle, you are presented with a choice. You can gossip about it, like you're in middle school, if you want to. You can say nothing and hold it in, or you can pray for them. All life is really just a series of opportunities given to us by God in which we become more heavenly or more hellish. God may make you aware of the sins of somebody else, not that so you might gossip, but so that you might pray for them. Oswald Chambers said, God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. Isn't that great? God may give you that, that realization of someone's struggle may be given to you as a gift to see what you're going to do with it. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to leverage that to let Christ be at work in you? See, I have a lot of friends online, like a lot of you do. I have a lot of former youth from my old youth groups that I follow. Not because I agree with them or what they're doing, I don't. But because I love them, and it's a reminder for me to pray for them. So when I see their stories or their pictures or whatever... I want to resist those initial feelings of judgment, which I would say is your old nature, the flesh rising up, to condemn, to accuse. Be careful with that heart mindset. I don't think there's anything about the whole work of the Holy Spirit that births that in our lives. And in reality, resist those feelings and leverage those moments to pray, to intercede on their behalf. That's Jesus at work in you. Tolerance does not mean that you accept someone's belief or action but that you treat them with dignity. 
We, we tend to hate that which we don't understand. And we tend, or we've even taken the time to understand. The Christian writer Thomas Akempis said, Gladly we desire to make other men perfect, but we will not amend our own fault. So with this topic of tolerance, I think we have to have a redefinition of terms. Because today in postmodern America, tolerance now means acceptance, which is a tragic confusion. I can tolerate and love absolutely all people, and I do. And I hope, just as I hope they tolerate and love me. But none of us completely accept everything. Every truth claim is, accept, is exclusive on some level. No one has a perfectly inclusive worldview. Even people that say, I believe that all religions lead to God, that is also an exclusive claim of truth. There's no such thing as a perfectly inclusive truth claim, so stop pretending there is. This is a fact about secular postmodern thought. Th think about this one. Secular postmodern thought is always for the inclusion of every possible point of view, except those points of view that do not include every possible point of view. This is philosophically impossible. And therefore, it strikes at the heart of the paradox of what it means to live in America in the year 2023. Go back to the fishbowl. The water we are swimming in is a sea of contradiction an oxymoron. For example, if I were to go on the street today and ask someone, do you believe that you live under the umbrella or authority of God, that, that you live under the truths of God's word, you live, under, you live under that blanket authority, which you would call a homogenous understanding of truth or morality? Do you live your life like that? An increasing number of people today, especially younger people, would say no. No, I don't believe that. So then I could ask them, do you believe in a heteronomous, meaning self-centered, self-focused understanding of truth and philosophy and morality and ethics, i.e., do you determine your own truth? You, therefore, your own standard of how you judge other people. Most, if not all, would agree. Yes, I do determine my own truth, my own morality, therefore my own standard of how I judge other people. Side note, it's that attitude that caused all the problem in the Garden of Eden. Put a pin in that one. But then here comes the rub. The same people that say, yes, I hold to a heteronomous view of truth and how I judge other people. Then they turn around and claim to everybody else, and you better believe what I believe or else. So therefore, now the heteronomous wants to become the homogenous. My truth must now be your truth. My umbrella must encompass yours. And if you don't, I will cancel you because I'm God and you're not. And in so doing, we violate the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. We judge others with an unfair standard, a standard that originates with the sinful self. The same standard that gets used against us and on and on it goes until we have a divided country, and yes, unfortunately, even a divided big C church sometimes. People want it both ways. You want to live under the authority of God, and you also want to get it your own way. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. And deep down, I think this has caused a split in the psyche of our culture. You can't have it both ways. 
And so, so many people today are deeply unhappy and lost and restless as they strain against the authority and the rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, Jesus' teaching of tolerance and peace and judgment, it gives some clarity. But here's some even better news. That his teaching about how to judge others is also how God treats you. Think about that. Jesus never teaches something he won't practice. He does not judge you. Can I get an amen? He does not judge you. He has not come to condemn you. He could and be fully justified in doing so, but he does not. He is for you. And today, we're doing what we typically do each year, which is a time where you remember your baptism. Now, when Jesus got baptized, he didn't need to be baptized. He didn't have any sin. He has nothing to be washed of. But he did it in order to be identified with us, to lead the way that we should follow. And the invitation of the Lord is not one of condemnation, but an invitation. And it's one in which he calls all people to live under his lordship and authority. See, what a Christian is really someone that says, I'm going to take myself off the throne of my life, and I'm going to let Jesus sit on that throne. It's not so much this head knowledge, or I grew up in church, and all that stuff. That's fine. But he wants to be the king of kings and lord of lords in your life. And so when we come to the waters of baptism, remember that those in rebellion to the authority and the rule of Christ, he calls you to come to the waters and be washed to be made clean. To those under his authority and guidance, come to the waters. To those who have judged others unfairly, come to the waters. To those who have been unfairly judged and condemned by others, come to the waters. Now, if you've never been baptized, come and talk to me after the service. We would love to help you do that. I would like to acknowledge that on days like this. Um, but in a minute, you can come through the center aisle. Lisa and I will be standing here, and we'll make a sign of the cross with water on your forehead, and you're welcome to uh, pray at the prayer rail. And it's just a time to remember that we are made new in Christ. And I, I want to mention, too, that sometimes when we get this sort of thing in a church service, we can feel this sense of shame or unworthiness that may hit us, and we feel like, oh, I'm not good enough or whatever. Well, you're in good company because <laughs> none of us are good enough, so come on in, the water's fine. But, you know, shame, shame, sometimes though, shame points to the need for grace. Don't let shame keep you in a certain place in your life and hold you there. Shame just means you failed to meet the standard. Again, welcome to the club. But shame means you're one step closer to the answer. If I never felt ashamed for anything I did, that's a dangerous place to be. But because you do feel it, it means that's the love of God at work in your life, calling you to himself. So don't let that keep you from making a draw closer to Christ or, or for any reason. My friends, I'm going to say a prayer, and then you're, going to be, you're free to come up through the center aisle, and we're going to uh, remember our baptisms. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the goodness of this day. Thank you for your presence. And God, as we remember our baptisms, or maybe we're baptized as babies, we don't even remember it, that's okay. 
Because it's your action toward us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. When we weren't even aware of our need for a Savior, you went to the cross for us. You went ahead of us. You preceded us, if you will, with your grace. So, God, it's your action toward us. It's, it's all about your ability. And, God, because of that, we draw near to you. As we come before these waters of baptism, let us remember, be washed, be made new on this day. For God, you are.